You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is Episode 9, covering the week of January 11th through January 15th, 2016. Glad to be back. Glad to be with you. We had a pretty good week at the Institute, but before we get started talking about what we did at the Institute this week, I'd like to remind everyone of our upcoming conference in February, February 26th and 27th, 2016 in Charleston, South Carolina. The topic is the PC attack on the South. We welcome you to come. Uh, Details are available on our website. We're going to have a lot of great speakers. It should be an interesting discussion. Uh, We'll have, of course, uh, Don Livingston, myself, Clyde Wilson, Barbara Marthal, who brought down the house in Stone Mountain, Georgia. She'll be back again to do a talk on her Southern heritage. Uh, So it should be a good time. Also, Carrie Roberts, uh, Tom Fleming. And on uh, Friday night, we have an interesting discussion about what this PC uh, PC attack on the South means for the South and how to combat that. And then on Saturday, we'll have a number of lectures focusing on several topics dealing with the issue. Also, Bertram Hayes Davis, the great-great-grandson of Jefferson Davis, will be there. The topic of his talk is Jefferson Davis Renaissance Man, so it should be an interesting time. A lot of people don't think about Jefferson Davis as an American hero, but that's what uh, Hayes Davis does quite well. He puts Davis within the context of the entirety of American history rather than just this four-year period of Southern history, which is the war. And that's something that we try to do at the Institute all the time, put the South in the context of a 400-year history rather than just a four-year history, which when we do that, we play right into the hands of the other side. Uh, We need to emphasize that the South was the South before the war, and it wasn't just slavery that unified Southerners in a worldview. And after the war, it wasn't just the defense of... uh, segregation that made the South what it was after the war. There's something that's true and valuable about the Southern tradition that we can carry into the future that can teach us how to live, and uh, the Institute tries to do that, and I think do it very effectively. So uh, before I talk about the, um, the material for the week, I wanted to kind of go back to last week in our podcast, and uh, last week's material on black Confederates and black slave owners was very uh, informative and also uh, stimulating in terms of discussion. And I I was reading uh, a a book uh, entitled Bridging Deep South Rivers, The Life and Legend of Horace King, written by John Leupold and Thomas French. It's about uh, a man named Horace King who was a bridge builder in Alabama and Georgia, before, uh, during, and after the war. He was a freed slave. Uh, He also built and designed the stairs in the Alabama State House in Montgomery. So he's a skilled carpenter, skilled engineer. He built many of the bridges that cross the span of the Chattahoochee. And it's interesting because anytime you read about someone in the South who was not white, who worked for the Confederacy or... um, was part of the Confederate war effort, you get to this issue of black, the, the myth of black Confederates or the legend of black Confederates that didn't quite mesh. And even in this particular book, uh, John Leupold, uh, who taught for years at Columbus State University, uh, says uh, 
when he's going over, the chapter is entitled, A Reluctant Confederate. So he says here that a recent addendum to the Horace King legend by neo-Confederates portrays him as a black Confederate, implying he supported the Southern cause. His testimony and his correspondence with Jameson counter that assumption. While eventually forced to work for the South, he always resented it and rejoiced when the Union was restored. Now, this was true, uh, but when you take this line, first of all, it's almost implying that he really wasn't a Confederate, but yet the title of the chapter is a reluctant Confederate, so which one is it? And not only that, if you take this line of thinking, then the thousands and thousands of people who were conscripted into the Union Army in the North or who joined simply for financial reasons were not really Union soldiers. They were reluctant Union soldiers. Uh this is where you start getting into this idea, you know, these words matter, how, how conflicted these people are when they start writing about this stuff. They just can't write the history and not throw barbs at quote-unquote neo-Confederates. There's another book uh, entitled Apostles of Disunion by Charles Dew, and the entire premise of the book is a polemic against quote-unquote neo-Confederates. So anyone who tries to have a more complex view of the war and says, okay, well, uh, yes, uh, there were people, and we're going to talk about it this week, not just blacks who were part of the Confederate war effort, sometimes on their own uh, fruition, sometimes not, uh, but yet they were still part of the war effort. Uh, or if you say that there were other groups, Indians, Jews, who were part of the Confederate war effort, well, that's just revisionism. They were just such a small fraction of the effort uh, that you really can't say that there was anything substantial there. And no one's saying that, that there were you know uh, legions of black Confederates going out and fighting for the South or uh, that there were uh, you know, large regiments raised of black Confederates. This isn't true. But there were people who did, who were black, who did fight for the South or who supported the Southern uh, effort. Uh, also in Columbus, there's uh, it was a naval yard, so they had... Uh, they had an ironworks here, and they were building a, a Confederate ram uh, named the CSS Jackson. And uh, there was another ship that was used in, in uh, the Columbus, Georgia area, entitled the Water Witch. And the pilot, the, the Water Witch was captured by the Confederacy, and the pilot of the ship that did that was black. And he was the first man killed boarding the Water Witch. He actually was armed getting onto the Water Witch to try to take the ship. So you did have cases of, of black Southerners fighting for the Confederacy. Uh, and last week we, we pointed out that there was an all-black home guard unit raised in New Orleans right at the beginning of the war. Now, they eventually, many of them switched sides and then supported the Union when the Union captured New Orleans. But uh, they did support the Confederacy. They, would not go out, they did not go out and fight in the Eastern Theater and the Western Theater, but they were part of the Confederate defenses of New Orleans. And even, again, in Columbus, Georgia, when the which is considered to be the last major battle in the Eastern Theater and the war, it took place on April 16, 1865, when they were building defenses of that, of that city, there were many, and this is documented, there were many slaves who offered to fight for the Confederacy and defend the city. And in fact, the Prussian Jew, we're going to talk about Jews who were um, uh, supportive of the Confederacy, the Prussian Jew who was 
involved uh, in, in uh, defending the city, and then there was another Prussian as well, uh, wrote that this was happening, uh, and they asked for, uh, for the Confederacy to uh, allow these uh, black soldiers to be raised. The Confederate government denied it at that particular point, but there were people who were interested in defending their home from a Union attack, and they suffered too. And we'll, we'll mention that when we get to uh, well, and Horace King talked about that, and, and in fact, in this, as you go down the book in this particular chapter, The Reluctant Confederate, uh, King's property was confiscated and destroyed by the Union Army uh, near Macon. And so uh, here you have a supposed Union supporter. His property is being confiscated and destroyed by the Union Army as they move through the area. So even uh, you know black Southerners who were supposedly sympathetic and supported the Union it didn't matter. Uh, their property was still forfeit, and uh, they were still subjected to the same thing that white Southerners were. And, of course, Columbus, Georgia was burned to the ground, much of it, when the Union Army occupied it and after it surrendered in April of 1865 for no reason, uh, simply because it was an industrial center and the Union Army looted the town, stole jewelry, stole shoes, they, it, it, and, and burned down several buildings, burned down all the factories except for one, uh, targeted civilian property. So it was a, a tough time, not just for uh, white Southerners, because black Southerners were suffering under this as well. Uh, so this is the complex part of history that most people don't focus on, or they say, well, I mean, this was necessary because uh, we had to get rid of the, uh, the ability of these particular areas to materially support the Confederacy. Uh, and you find that now that, that that narrative is being pushed quite a bit, which is why you have a statue of William Tecumseh Sherman in Columbia, South Carolina, which is crazy if you think about it. I mean, this is the man that burned the city in 1865, and this has been documented quite extensively. But yet the leaders of the historical uh, consciousness in Columbia, South Carolina, decide that we need to have a monument to William Tecumseh Sherman. That would have been, uh, that never would have happened even 50 years ago, uh, but definitely 100 years ago. And uh, it, it's amazing how things change. So uh, that, that material we had last week was a lot of fun, a lot of discussion on our Facebook page about it. Uh, so if you haven't liked our Facebook page, please go, please go out there and do that. Go to www.abbevilleinstitute.org. It's A B B E V I L L E institute.org. And uh, like us on Facebook or Twitter. Follow us on YouTube. We did put up the videos from our last conference at Stone Mountain, so you can watch all of those, with the exception of one, uh, on YouTube for free. So if you missed the conference and want to see what we talked about and maybe get an idea for what we're going to do in February, please go check that out. Uh, also remember that we do exist on your generosity. So if you go to our website and you are so inclined to donate to the Institute, we'd love to, uh, to have your support. For less than five bucks a month, you can become a member of the Institute, and uh, it's, a, it's a great way to help support what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition to push back against the dominant narrative now in the South and in the United States as a whole that the South, there's nothing good in the South, um, and, and uh, we need to generally marginalize Southern history and, and talk about only the bad things in Southern history, or the and, and we'll get into this. Uh, Manichaeism, uh, as we talk about a article from, from John Devaney, but uh, the idea that there's a good and bad, and it's, it's very clear-cut. 
It's, it's white and black. Uh, and that's not true uh, in any of history. In, in, in all history, except for the South, it seems like, in the United States, we're willing to see the, the, the shades of gray in history, how things were not always just so clear-cut, but with the exception of Southern history, which was clear-cut. It was good and bad, good and evil. Uh, and, and that presents a real narrative problem for the South as we move forward. So uh, let's get into the material for the week. Uh, first and foremost, on Monday, we had a piece by John Devaney, uh, and it was a review of the Harper Lee novel, Ghost Set, A Watchman, which just came out not long ago. And of course, it raised a great stir because of one particular point, which I'm going to talk about and focus on in this review, and, and, and Dr. Devaney does a nice job. Uh, John Devaney was one of Clyde Wilson's students at the University of South Carolina. He was there when I started there. Uh, and anyone who knows John, uh, and, and there's a little story about this, anyone knows John, uh, you oftentimes wonder if he's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, when I went to, to South Carolina and was thinking about going to graduate school there, I met with, with uh, Clyde for about two minutes, and then he whisked me off into a room with uh, John Devaney and Carrie Roberts, and they proceeded to interrogate me for about 20 minutes on uh, you know, why I wanted to go to graduate school, what I thought about history, et cetera, et cetera. And I think John pulled out the Oxford English Dictionary on me and, and tried to see if I knew what I was talking about or, or what I thought about things. So he's a very intelligent guy, uh, an, an extremely good historian, and uh, he has a, a wonderful view of the South. Uh, he's from an old Maryland family, so he's uh, from the Upper South, and uh, he, he's just one of these, these historians that, uh, that Clyde Wilson produced that uh, looks at things in a very objective manner, in a complex manner. And I think that's what he's doing here with this particular novel, Ghost at a Watchman. And, of course, uh, Harper Lee is one of these sacrosanct authors in, in, in Alabama uh, because of To Kill a Mockingbird, which made her very, very famous. And then she produces this book. Uh, Ghost Set a Watchman. And people were eagerly anticipating this book. They wanted to read it. They wanted to have it. They wanted to see what happened to Atticus Finch and uh, and how this story went forward. And when they got it, they were distraught. They were shocked. Uh, it's not just the critics who felt betrayed, but Miss Jean-Louise Finch also felt betrayed in the book because her father was one time a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and now was a member of a group uh, the, called the Local Citizens Council, which was opposed to desegregation and voting rights for African Americans. So this hero, this guy that had fought against racism, at least theoretically, and to killing Mockingbird, now is on the other side. And uh, Jean-Louis is... Uh, is, is feels betrayed in the book. She And, and as uh, John Devaney says, uh, John Louise's iconic worship of her father as the paragon of justice and fortitude is challenged when she is confronted with two facts about his life. One, that he's a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and two, that he's a member of the local citizens' council. So Jean Louise is indignant and distressed by these revelations. Readers and critics join Miss Jean Louise in her disappointment and distress at Atticus's transgressions. Given the provocative nature of Atticus's affiliations, one might excuse the reaction of both Miss Finch and the critics. Miss Finch felt feels betrayed, and so do the critics, who are quite convinced that this is a novel about race 
And doggone, but Atticus is on the wrong side this time. And so then Dr. Devaney says, well, the readers and critics are wrong. Miss Lee's novel is not about race at all, though the racial conflicts of the 1950s serve as a crucial context for the novel. The novel's theme, however, focuses on Jean-Louis' struggle to acquire the cardinal virtues necessary to moral navigation. Indeed, Miss Lee tell, tells us so in the very midst of her argument with Atticus. Quote, The Negroes were incidental to the issue in this war, to your private war. And what pray tells what pray tell is this private war involving Miss Finch? It is the need of the conscience for the virtues of temperance and prudence. Quote, I need a watchman to draw a line down the middle and say, here is this justice and there is that justice and make me understand the difference. So Dr. Devaney says, justice and fortitude do not enable one to make such distinctions. Thus the need for temperance to gently moderate justice and for prudence, the queen of virtues, to consider those singular and particular things that are the real objects of human action. Prudence rejects the Manichaeism impulse to impose justice at any, at any cost. And those that don't know what um, Manichaean impulse or the Manichaeism is, it's a religion that came out of the, uh, of the East that taught that there is a black and white, a moral right, and a moral wrong. And that's how people tend to see the South. It's one or the other. There's no, there's no shades of gray in the middle. You're either, you're either on the right side or the wrong side. And you can't really be uh, in the middle on anything. And so that's how people tend to foist their, their view on the South. It's puritanical in that way. Uh, and that is the, the yoke of Southern history. Well, obviously Southerners were wrong about one particular issue. And so because of that, they can't be right about anything else. And even in that one particular issue, which is race and slavery, there's no shades of gray in that. It's all one way or the other. And this simply reduces Southerners to, uh, to subhumans. Uh, and, and, and people talked about this before the war. We had a podcast on that. Uh, how uh, when you do this, when you reduce Southerners to simply animals, uh, there's nothing worthy of, of study about these people outside of their views on race and slavery. They, they can't offer anything to the world that would be beneficial. And we know this is not true. This is why the Institute exists to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We do this with other things, as I'm going to talk about in uh, the last piece. We're able to do that with Northerners all the time. Well, these people had views that we don't find uh, acceptable in modern society, but yet they gave us this, so we should be fine with studying them. We'll just overlook that other stuff. You can't do it in the South. You can't say, well, these people had views on race, and, and of course they were slave owners, and we find that repugnant, but what about this? Uh, so we have to focus on everything that's bad about Southerners, and they offer nothing good. Uh, even when you look at people that are held sacrosanct, again, people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, we spend so much time talking about their moral or ideological transgressions, uh, we can't focus on the things that they offered us that we can still use as examples to live our lives. Uh, and, and this is the PC attack. This is what it does. And so eventually this is going to en engross the North as well. P and it's starting to happen. 
you can't continue on this revolutionary idea very long without starting to consume what others would say you can't attack. Uh, so it's going to happen. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of time. And of course, the South is the easy target. Southerners are the easy target because of their labor system and because of their views on the social order. Uh, and this is why it's so important to push back against this and, and, and say, okay, well, uh, but they did offer many great things uh, when it comes to culture, when it comes to the arts. Uh, I was actually reading another uh, a book this week, and uh, it was about it was an old written in the early 20th century for children about uh, about American history, and uh, the particular author he he's not um, uh, very laudatory in terms of the South, but uh, he is fair in some ways about the South. But even there, and this guy uh, he's from the North, um, and and uh, he. He writes this little. This it's only about fifty-three pages. A little fifty-three-page book on on American history, up to his life, the beginning of the colonial period, up to the end, uh, up to that that point, early twentieth century. And what you find is, first of all, he's from the north, and he's he's extremely proud of the Anglo-Saxon race, and he's very negative about Black Americans. Uh, so he's a northerner. Uh, so you have this this particular view, uh, uh, what we would call today a racist view of American history. Uh, but the North is this glorious, liberty-loving people, and the South were these backwards uh, people who had no arts and no culture. Well, that was a, a dominant view for a long time, but as we know, that's simply not true. Uh, there was a, a substantial culture in the South and a substantial uh, a group of artists, if, it's, if nothing more than literary figures in the South uh, before the war. And, uh, but this is, this is the perception. Uh, but when you read this thing, you read it and you think, well, this guy's a northerner, and look what he says about race. Uh, he, he's very negative uh, about uh, the, the virtues of black Americans. And so that is often overlooked. Well, okay, uh, you, can't, um, uh, you can't criticize him for that because he talks about the great liberty-loving north. Uh, even the people in Reconstruction, we're going to get to a piece on Reconstruction, are often considered... Uh, in the early 20th century, the Dunning School, D uh, William Archibald Dunning was not a Southerner. Uh, so uh, you had this Dunning School out of the North, which uh, talked about the evils of Reconstruction. And he was critical of Reconstruction for a variety of reasons, uh, but he's often criticized for being extremely racist. But the thing about the Dunning School, it, was it had a very complex view of Reconstruction. It wasn't just uh, the social order of Reconstruction. Dunning talked about the radical transformation of the Union in every way, not just social, but also political and economic, and how things had changed because of the war. So uh, when you look at this particular book, Go Set a Watchman, it wrestles with that issue, the simplistic view of the South of right and wrong, and, and Dr. Devaney does an excellent job with that. So if you haven't read a Go Set a Watchman, maybe you should start with Dr. Devaney's review of the book and then go read Go set a watchman. On uh, Tuesday, we published a poem by uh, Michael Drayton, who was a Renaissance poet uh, in England. He never went to the New World, but this particular poem is entitled To the Virginian Voyage. And, and I know I've read poetry on here before, but I'm not going to read this uh, today. Uh, but the, the interesting thing about this is this is often considered to be perhaps the first example of Southern literature. 
Uh, and he wrote this poem in 1606. And it was in honor of Sir Walter Raleigh's first expedition to plant a permanent settlement of English people in North America. And what the interesting thing about the poem, if you compare it to the poems that came, or the literature that came out of New England, and, and, and then compare it to this, what you find is that the southern view of the world was so optimistic and excited. It was an opportunity to go somewhere and do something great uh, and, and be part of an almost utopian environment. Look at all the riches that this world can offer. And it wasn't just gold. I mean, people did think there were boulders of gold laying on the ground for a time. We're just going to go crank that up and send it back over to, to England. We're going to become filthy, stinking rich. But these, these people did think about working and working this land and becoming part of it. That was part of the cavalier idea, uh, the distressed cavalier, to recreate English society in the New World. And David Hackett Fisher has done a fantastic job. But not just that, um, there was um, a, a, a wonderful book uh, by a man named Wright. It was The First Gentleman of Virginia. And uh, gets into this idea of, of these cavaliers and, and the society in which they created in Virginia. And remember, Virginia was, for a long period of Southern history, the hub of the South. Uh, and it wasn't until later, uh, when you get to the middle of the 19th century, that it kind of lost that status. But Virginians still consider themselves that. And they still wanted Virginia to be the South. And if you look at Southern history, the, the ideas that came out of Virginia would be the South. Uh, when you look at uh, the idea of the, the political ideas, uh, strict construction, uh, when you look at uh, the original, the first treatise uh, extended commentary on the Constitution by St. George Tucker comes out of Virginia, the Jeffersonian School. So when you look at the political tradition, which is what we focus most extensively on, on here at the Institute, and that's one thing that really is offered to the world out of the South, Virginia set the standard. And so you have this poem, and it's, it's so optimistic, and it, you, you get a feeling that what Virginians wanted to do was carve out a place that was going to be a wonderful example of uh, human enterprise and the, the dominance of the human spirit and what you could get out of that in a great new world. When you read Puritan literature, it's dark, it's foreboding. This is a wilderness that had to be tolerated. It was terrible, uh, full of dark things. And that's the Puritan mindset, right? This, this Manichaeism, it's, it's a Puritan mindset, right and wrong, good and evil. Uh, there's, no, there's no middle ground. Uh, and it's a, it's a very dark and depressing way to look at the world. Uh, and so that's often what you get out of the Puritan literature. And this is the stuff that kids are forced to read every day. It's why they don't like literature anymore. I mean, if you have to read Hawthorne all the time, it's awful. Uh, if you have to read a lot of the stuff that came out of New England, it's, it's just it's terrible. But when you read Southern literature, and while it can take very violent themes and, and uh, it's not always pleasant to read, it's different. Uh, and even the literature that's dark that comes out of the South, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, quite a nice example of that, it's still fun. Uh, it, it's not something that you read and you think, oh, gosh, I was so bored when I was reading that. I could barely get through it. Southern literature is not boring. 
Uh, and I, but northern literature often is. You, you struggle to get through it. You think to yourself, is this book ever going to end? Because I can't, <laughs> I can't stand reading another page, but I have to get through it. Uh, so, and the same thing goes with this poem by Drayton. And go ahead and read it on the website. It's, it's an excellent poem to the Virginian Voyage. And we'll do more of this going forward, put more uh, uh, poetry up. On Wednesday, we had the continuation of Clyde Wilson's Sayings by Our Four Southerners, part 24. So we've had 24 parts of this, and uh, <clears throat> this is the in the same vein as what uh, he did years ago at uh, Chronicles, where he had uh, What is History, a long series on, on history. And, and uh, if you ever took a class with Dr. Wilson in graduate school, he would, he would uh, do this. He would bring in quotations about history and what it was and what it meant. And this is something that everyone wrestles with. What is history and why is it valuable? Why do we study history at all? If we study it to, to not make the mistakes of the past, then we don't do a very good job. Uh, if we study it uh, simply for knowledge, then that's okay. Uh, is, is there, do we study history for a, for a usable reason? Um, I think here at the Institute we study history to, to find that there was something valuable in the South and that we can, we can find that in, in the history itself. Uh, and so th- this is why we do it. But uh, there's a number of great little quotations here. Uh, one is by abolitionist the- Theodore Parker. The South is the foe to northern industry, to our mines, our manufacturers, and our commerce. And by John Taylor of Caroline. Consolidators, supremacists, and conquerors, however, will all equally disregard any instrument, however solemn and explicit, by which ambition and avarice will be restrained and the happiness of mankind improved. Of course, Taylor is talking about the U.S. Constitution, which the, the idea of the Constitution itself was to restrain government. Once you have a written Constitution, that's different than an unwritten Constitution. This is something that, that is not often discussed when people talk about, well, the Constitution is there to limit the government. Well, why? By the simple nature of the document itself, as a written document, it's there to provide parameters for the general government that it cannot exceed. When you have an unwritten constitution like you do in Great Britain, uh, the constitution is malleable. It can be changed at any time by the will of the court. So you have this common law system that has done much to damage the written constitution of the United States. And so I often tell people that we're playing two different games on two different fields. You know, our side is playing baseball, where tradition matters, where stats and the past matter, where the rules matter. And there's no innovation, really. I mean, the game's very simple. You catch the ball, you throw the ball, you hit the ball, and we can take players of today and compare them with players from the past because the game really hasn't changed a whole lot. Uh, Maybe the players have changed a little bit, and for a time, maybe illegally changed a little bit. Uh, A lot of them did. But a home run still a home run. A pitch is still a pitch. A, a man that throws a pitch, uh, 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 is a good pitcher, is still going to win out over a good hitter uh, seven times out of ten. Uh, and so you can really measure measure the game because of its traditions. Whereas in football, which is what the other side is, is playing, the, the game has changed so much even in the last 30 years that it's hard to compare a current football player with a player from 30 years ago because the game has changed so much and it's always innovative you have new offenses new defenses new things that are doing certainly the game is still to score a touchdown to score points but the innovation is what makes football interesting and it changes every few years how you play the game what you do in the game how you structure the game baseball never changes traditions matter 
Uh, and so the other side, the common law people are playing football because they can just change the game anytime. The rules in football change quite often. Uh, not really in baseball. They haven't changed in a very, very long time. Uh, so we changed, they, they changed, they tweaked the rules in football to, to make it different. Um, it, it's amazing how those, those analogies, of course, George Carlin had, had a very funny analogy about football and baseball. But when you look at, at, the, at the nature of our debate about a written or unwritten constitution, this is what it comes down to. One side wants an unwritten constitution that can be changed at any time, in any way they see fit, whereas our side wants a written constitution that exists. And you can read it. And uh, we have this debate going on, for example, with, uh, uh, with Ted Cruz, whether he's a, a natural-born citizen. Well, for years, everyone said, well, if you're not born in the United States, it doesn't matter if you're born to an American. If you're born outside the United States, unless you're on American property, and, unless you're, I mean, and also this idea that you have to be born to a father who's a citizen, uh, if you're not that, and that's how the founders thought about it, then you're not a you're, you're not a natural born citizen. Of course, this is getting into the Ted Cruz idea of if he's a natural born citizen. And I think very clearly, if you're an originalist, originalist, no, he's not a natural born citizen. So he's he's not qualified to be president of the United States. But uh, if you go to a malleable constitution, to a textualist, even even saying written, well, this is what it says, but we can interpret it this way. Well, now you're getting into this idea of a changing constitution. And so we need to push back against that idea. Uh, and I think uh, this is becoming a very interesting argument. So, uh, Taylor of Caroline, if you're talking about uh, the Constitution, you have to emphasize the written and unwritten Constitution. We need to follow the written Constitution because that was there for a reason. The founding generation wanted a written Constitution. They, they could have had an unwritten Constitution, but they chose a written Constitution. Uh, also, it was a very interesting quotation from President William Howard Taft, and he said this in, uh, in 1911, uh, and this is his quote, I am not one of those who believe that it is well to educate the massive Negroes with academic or university education. On the contrary, I am firmly convinced that the hope of the Negro is in his industrial education throughout the South and in teaching him to be a better farmer, a better carpenter, and a better blacksmith than he is now, and to make more blacksmiths and more good farmers than there are now among the Negroes. Now, uh, this is a northerner, William Howard Taft, saying this at a, at a northern school. And this was the general attitude of the north in the early 20th century, not just in the south. It was the general attitude of people like Booker T. Washington. And that was okay. You notice he says, keep them in the south. Uh, make them skilled laborers and, and keep them down there. Uh, and it, Taft is not ta- raked over the coals for his obviously what we would call racist attitudes of today. Uh, and he's, he's not done that. He, he, he doesn't face any of the scorn that if a Southerner said this, well, I mean, you'd be tearing down every symbol to this Southerner across the United States. But here's William Howard Taft. I mean, nobody's tearing anything down about Taft. Uh, and this is, the, this is the hypocrisy of the entire PC movement, at least at this point. As I mentioned earlier, it's going to come. The, uh, the, the Northerners who support these ideas, they will be attacked. It's just a matter of time. Uh, and in fact, my, uh, the, the last piece we're going to talk about gets into this in, in my talk at the, uh, at the Charleston Conference is going to focus on this. It's tear down symbols of slavery in the North. If you're going to do this, well, then just go after it all. Uh, and let's be done with it. Uh, because the Southern tradition, even if you tore down every symbol in the South, the Southern tradition would still be there. And it's more than just symbols. 
Uh, not, I'm not advocating tearing anything down, of course. But the Southern tradition is greater than a symbol. It's greater than a flag or a monument or a statue. It's greater than any of that. And because it is so beneficial, because it is beautiful, as this last quote says, it's hard to get rid of it. And this is from Dr. Robert Peters of Louisiana. He says this, The South is a garden. It has been worn out by the war, reconstruction, the period of desolation, the depression, and worst, and the worst ravages of all, modernity. Yet a worn-out garden, its contours perceived by keen eyes, the fruitfulness of its past stored in memory, can be over time, a time which will last no longer than those of us who initially set our minds to the task, restored to once again produce, for the time appointed unto it, the fruits which nature, the human spirit, and which foreshadow the garden of which there will be no end. So the South is still this garden. It's worn out. It can even be untouched and overgrown. But anyone who wants to cultivate that garden can do so. And even if you don't have any symbols left, the garden is still there. You'll still find it. Now, once a garden has been there, the contours are there, the land is there, you can find it again. And so that's what we're trying to do in the, in the South, is find that garden and cultivate it. If you have no symbols, the garden is still there to be cultivated. And so that's a wonderful quote that uh, was in Sayings Buyer for Southerners, Part 24. On Thursday, we had another great piece by uh, John Marcourt. Uh, John sends wonderful stuff all the time. Uh, and again, he's uh, living in Japan, uh, probably our, our farthest in terms of distance contributor to the Abbeville Institute. And he was uh, interested in this piece because of a, of a piece that we published a couple of weeks ago by Dave Benner on GDP Benjamin. And so uh, Mr. Marcourt took it a step further and said, wait a second here, what about all the other Jews who were Southerners, who uh, served the Confederacy at one point, but even before that, how long Jews had been in the South. In fact, as he points out in this article, there were more Jews in the South than anywhere else for much of American antebellum history. That's often overlooked, uh, this monolithic or myopic view of the South that is just you know, one way or the other, this, this uh, Manichaeistic view or Manichaean view of the South. It's black and white, right and wrong. Uh, but that's not, it's, it's much more complex. And so this is a great article because it gets into that. It talks about how uh, the number of Jews that were in Charleston and Savannah, Georgia. Uh, and there is a, uh, there is a monument to, uh, Jewish Confederates in Virginia. And I believe there's one in, in Charleston, South Carolina too. Uh, and there are people who don't understand Jews in America, who don't understand the history of Jews in America and in the South and the influence of Jews in many southern states. Uh, uh, Mr. Marcourt talks about how many Jews fought for the United States during the American War for Independence, uh, how there was an entire Jewish infantry corps raised in Charleston under General William Moultrie, which saw action throughout the South and also at Yorktown, uh, how there, were, uh, there was a... Uh, uh, several political leaders that were Jews uh, from, uh, from the South. Uh, David Emanuel, 
um, who was in Burke County uh, and um, how he was uh, Burke County, uh, Georgia, how he was elected a justice of the peace. He served in the Continental Army. Uh, he was elected to the Georgia State Assembly, became a member of the Constitutional Conventions of 1789 and 1795. He was the president of the state Senate in 1797 and was appointed governor of Georgia in 1801, the first Jewish governor in America, in Georgia. Uh, you had German Jews in Virginia. Uh, the uh, third Jewish congregation in the South was established in Richmond in 1759. Uh, he also said a little-known a little fact of history was that in 1783, two members of that congregation, Jacob Cohen and Isaiah Isaacs, employed frontiersman Daniel Boone to explore and charter vast tracts of land for settlement in the western part of Virginia, an area that was to become the Commonwealth of Kentucky a decade later. Uh, so uh, you had the first uh, Jew to be elected to any public office in the United States, what would become the United States, in South Carolina. He was elected to the first South Carolina Provincial Congress. He was also re-elected to the second Congress uh, in South Carolina. Uh, he mentions that uh, your largest contingency of Jews in the United States, in the colonies in the United States, was in the South. Uh, he also says, furthermore, while it would be disingenuous to say that anti-Semitism did not exist in the South, the Southern Jews were far more likely to not only be left alone by their Christian neighbors, but to be more widely accepted in the communities in which they live. Uh, he says, dozens of towns throughout the South were named for traveling Jewish merchants. Kaplan, Louisiana, Marks, Mississippi, Manassas, Virginia. Uh, he says many other Jews helped to create major businesses in the South, as well as to aid its political and social life. Uh, uh, he says one of these was a man named Henry Lehman, who came to Montgomery, Alabama from Bavaria in 1844. Six years later, he and his brothers Emanuel and Meyer formed the Lehman Brothers Cotton Brokerage Firm, and after the war between the states, the company helped finance Alabama's reconstruction. Lehman Brothers ultimately rose to become the world's fourth largest brokerage house before its failure in the 2008 crash. So there's a, <laughs> related to the South. Uh, and this is just a wonderful um, a piece. He gets into, of course, Judy P. Benjamin, uh, the Ulees of Florida, uh, and um, how important David Ulee was to the Confederate government. Um, so... Uh, and he gets into the uh, after the war that Jews, Southern Jews, still had a, an impact on uh, the United States. He talks about Monsanto, uh, which was started by a Southern Jew, um, and the Monsanto Chemical Works. So uh, it, it's amazing the impact of um, of Jews in the South and how important they were to Southern history. And he ends with a quote. Uh, he says, "Perhaps, however, the late author, editor, the former Char Carolina Israelite." And Charles and Charlotte, North Carolina, excuse me, and self-styled bard of Southern Jewry, uh, Harold Golden, summed things up best when he said, "There were Jews in the South before there was a South." Now, the South exists existed really, <laughs> and the idea of Southern culture existed from the beginning. But his point is well taken. There were Jews here for a very long time, and we often don't know this this part of history. And then finally, another uh, part of history that's often untold. This is by Philip Lee and. Uh, Philip Lee has written uh, many pieces. We, we take them from his newsletter. Uh, he's an author, writes, he does a lot of work with Civil War roundtables. Um, he's, um, he's a very uh, balanced historian. He's not, 
uh, pro-Southern, but he, he finds what is valuable in the South, and, and, he, and he points out the hypocrisy oftentimes of, of Northern simplistic views of the South. Uh, and so he really takes those people to task. Uh, he lives in Florida, uh, and he, he's a very good writer. Um, so uh, if you ever get a chance, so check out Philip Lee's books. Uh, it's not L-E-E, it's L-E-I-G-H. Uh, and he, he's, uh, he writes all the time, uh, puts out books uh, usually about once a year, once every year and a half or so on, uh, on Southern history, or at least war history, I should say. Uh, and so he, he's, um, he takes great hits for doing what he does and, uh, and talking about what he believes are you know, the facts that you can't have this self-righteous, moralistic view of the North uh, and, and, compose, and compared to the South, there can't be a white and black. There's shades of gray in each of these things, and you have to, you have to take them for what they were. And he gets into this in Reconstruction. Uh, he says, although predicting that the present Reconstruction sesquicentennial shall result in, in reams of material blaming the South for our racial conundrum, uh, there is an author, uh, Jean Dattel, who wrote a little piece, The Untold Story of Reconstruction, which is what this piece is entitled, Detail concludes that all the issues of Reconstruction circle back to the toxic attitudes of the white North towards blacks. After commenting upon how the present demonization of Confederate symbols contrasts with the respectful reconciliation of opposing leaders such as a Grant and Lee, Detail cogently observes that while white Northerners may have opposed race-based slavery, they disdained free blacks and wanted them excluded from society. And then he gets into talking about this. So Lee points out, even though blacks represented less than 2% of the population in the northern states as compared to 40% in the Confederate states, most white northerners wanted blacks concentrated in the south. As Connecticut was freeing its slaves 50 years before the war, Yale President Timothy Dwight wrote, quote, Free blacks are generally neither able nor inclined to make their freedom a blessing. When they first become free, they are turned out into the world, fitted to make them only nuisances to society, where they waste much of what they earn and are left as miserable victims to sloth, poverty, ignorance, and vice. Nearly 60 years later, Connecticut voted against the 15th Amendment that granted male blacks the right to vote. And so he says, Lee says, although Yale students loudly proclaimed to need to change the name of the John Calhoun Residential College because of his racism, they are not objecting to the moniker of the Timothy Dwight Residential College despite Dwight's racism. So here you have the hypocrisy, the double standard. Another anti-slavery advocate holding low opinions of blacks was Lincoln's Secretary of State, William H. Seward. When speaking in Detroit in 1860, he said, The great fact is now fully realized that the African race here is incapable of assimilation. He only supported black suffrage in New York because their numbers were negligible but he opposed it in the Washington city where the blacks were numerous. Detail sagaciously observes that the number of blacks in a locale became the critical fact throughout the African-American experience. So anywhere there were large numbers of blacks, there was opposition in the north even of voting rights or civil rights. Anytime you had a few, well, it was okay because it would have no impact on society. And this is where, uh, you know, northerners were more than willing to do this to the South, but not in their own backyard, NIMBY. Not in my backyard, but we'll do it in your backyard. And this is generally the left. And they do this all the time. Uh, I'm all for uh, wind power in the North. Robert Kennedy, all for wind power. we got to have wind power. got to have renewable resources. But when you want to put them 
out in his backyard in the ocean, oh, that, that destroys the view of the ocean in my backyard, so you can't do it here. We'll do it over there where I can't see it, but that's great because I'm altruistic. I'm, I'm self-motivated uh, uh, to do this. I'm so good. Look at me. I want to stop global warming. So look at me and all the things I'll do in your backyard. What, what are you doing? Not what I'm doing. This is where Southerners have always said, look, sweep around your own doorstep. You worry about what you're doing up there. We'll worry about what we're doing down here. Because you've got all the skeletons and you're, you're, not, you're not perfect. Uh, and so we're always willing to tell somebody else to do something. You should do this. But then when you turn it back on them, a lot of times they're not doing what they say you should be doing, or they're not willing to do it themselves with the situation that somebody else might confront. So Dedell says, Northern opposition to slavery is a half-story that whitewashes American history. One example is Congressman Wilmot, uh, Wilmot's proviso after the Mexican War. If approved, the proviso would have prohibited the expansion of slavery into U.S. territories that had not yet been organized as states. But that's only part of the story. However, Wilmot actually referred to the bill as the white man's proviso because he wanted to reserve such territories exclusively for whites. By any other name, that was racial segregation. Wilmot said, I plead the case of free white men. It is not true that the defenders of the rights of free white labor seek equality of the black race with the white. The list goes on, Lee says. Lincoln's Treasury Secretary, Salmon Chase, thought emancipation would motivate northern blacks to move to the south. In 1862, when blacks comprised less than 1% of the Illinois population, the state's soldiers voted 3-1 to one to deny the blacks the right to vote. Massachusetts and Illinois each refused to resettle contrabands, slaves behind Union lines, to their states during the war. The North solution was confinement of slaves to the South. Massachusetts governor, uh, I'm sorry, Massachusetts congressman George Boutwell proposed resettling Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina exclusively with African Americans. He also warned white voters in his state that if his political agenda for mandatory black suffrage in the South, but not the North, failed, a massive migration of blacks to the northern states could be expected where the ex-slaves would compete for jobs with white workers. The adamantly anti-slavery Chicago Tribune wrote, wrote, quote, The greatest ally of the slaveholder is the apprehension that if slaves were liberated, they would become roaming, vicious vagrants, that they would overrun the north. Four years before the Civil War, the free state of California sent black inmates to be sold as slaves in New Orleans. Again, this stuff isn't talked about because it, it blows apart that self-righteous northern narrative. While some modern historians lament that President Andrew Johnson was not impeached from office, I should say, of course, he was impeached but not removed, readers should consider the racial attitudes his designated successor who was Senate pro tempore Ben Wade of Ohio. Wade loathed blacks. In 1851, he labeled Washington as a mean God-forsaken nigger place. Twenty-two years later, he sought to hire a white servant because he was sick and tired of niggers. Wade preferred blacks at a distance. I mean, think about that. This is, this is the guy who was for the Wade Davis bill, which uh, would have made it nearly impossible for the South to, uh, to have any form of a gentle reconstruction. And look what he's saying. You, ca you can't say this now. Uh, this guy was using racial terms that are uh, completely uh, banned. 
and he's he's revered. Uh, ben Wade is revered because he wanted to kill Southerners after the war. And look what he's saying about African Americans. But of course, uh, in modern society, the complexities of history don't matter. It's black or white. And of course, I use those terms in quotations. Those are not my terms. This is what Benjamin Wade said. A few months before Lee's surrender, the New York Times declared white ingenuity and enterprise ought to direct black labor in order to return cotton to volume production. After the war, many former Union soldiers went south with such ambitions. The great majority failed miserably even after buying plantations at bargain prices only to realize later that they lacked the skills to grow cotton profitably. And then he gets into a real gem. One plantation buyer used $10,000 received from his mother to buy a plantation. His mother, Harriet Beecher Stowe. His mom joined her son on the Florida plantation. She lost her entire investment, but not before concluding that blacks should not be given the vote. She wrote of the animal con content, an irrepressible nervous system of former slaves. She also concluded that black children should be largely educated to learn practical skills such as sewing for the girls and agriculture for the boys. This is Harriet Beecher Stowe. The woman that Abraham Lincoln said started the Civil War. Uncle Tom's cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe, goes to Florida. Her son buys a plantation, and it fails. And in the process, Harriet Beecher Stowe concludes that African Americans are worthless, essentially. All the time you're going to read about Harriet Beecher Stowe, every article you'll read about her, every time you read a brief biography, I highly doubt this is going to be in that particular biography. And then Lee concludes, Northerners were too much preoccupied with the pursuit of wealth that seemed abundant during the Gilded Age to be concerned with blacks beyond merely wishing they stay in the South. After the completion of Ulysses Grant's embarrassingly corrupt-prone presidency, Wisconsin Senator Matt Carpenter summed up the attitude of most Northerners by concluding it was time to turn attention from politics to trade and business. So here we have the complex view of Reconstruction. We're in the sesquicentennial of Reconstruction now. We will be for several years. This will be a much longer period of time. Of course, we all know that Reconstruction didn't end in 1876 or 1877. It was ongoing. We're still living in it. Just the idea that we have this push for a PC narrative of American history, when you cannot have the complexities of it, when that is impossible to do, when everything is reduced to a black and white issue, you have Reconstruction ongoing. Because a complex history is the enemy of Reconstruction. It's the enemy of Reconstruction because what it does is show that there were not altruistic, self-righteous Northerners there's no puritanical history where one side is right and one side is wrong completely. 
You can't have that. So when you have this complex view of, of Southern society, of Reconstruction, of the war, when you point out people like Wade and what they said, or people like Harriet Beecher Stowe and what they said, or William Howard Taft and what they said, or you point out the hypocrisy of Northerners, or that one of the great race riots in the 20th century, in fact, almost all of the major race riots in the 20th century, took place in northern cities. One of the most vicious and violent lynchings ever in the annals of American history took place in a northern town. When you have that, it blows apart this narrative of self-righteous, benevolent northerners and evil, horned-headed southerners. It just doesn't work. It can't work, and it shouldn't work, because that's not history. This is why the Abbeville Institute exists, because we want to ensure that we explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, that we carry this idea forward that Southern history is complex. There's something valuable in all of it. Just as people can say there's something valuable in Northern history. We're not, the Abbeville Institute is not saying there's, there's nothing valuable in Northern history. But yet we should point out the complexities of Northern history. And we should show that Northern history is not always good. And Southern history is not always bad. Even among people that people say, well, these people are bad. There's something valuable in everything. And that's all we're trying to do. Until next time, good day.